law, liberty, and life in Jesus, knowing how it all works. We're going through the book of Galatians. This morning, the title is, When Angels Don't Bring Good Tidings of Great Joy. When Angels Don't Bring Good Tidings of Great Joy. We looked at the first five verses last week of chapter 1. We're going to pick up at verse 6 and go to verse 10 this morning. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Let me read. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I talked last two weeks about the Judaizers who would come from Jerusalem under the guise of being from James and the apostles there, came to the Galatian Christians, new Christians, and tried to teach them that it's good that they had found Christ, but they need to come under the the sign of circumcision of the Old Covenant and the dietary regulations of the Old Covenant if they really wanted to please God. That those are the, those are the, the sum in verse 7 who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Verse 8, and here's where the title comes from. But even if we are an angel from heaven, when angels don't bring good tidings of great joy, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a, go a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. you got to be kidding. That is not the way to get seekers to come back to church, is it? Nine, as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. And he repeats it because he wants them to know it wasn't a mistake the first time. Ten. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, it's really hard to faithfully serve Jesus and have everybody admire you for it. And if everybody's admiring you, it probably means you're not really endorsing the gospel as clearly as you ought. Let's pray. Thank you for the thoroughness of the revelation we have by the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And I pray that you will help us to open our minds and open our hearts to receive what you would say we love our Bibles because they point us to the Savior we love even more. Bless this time here in this room and, and in homes and family rooms as we study together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. These verses, 6 through 10, that we just read, they reveal the fact that something is, something's going on in this letter that I want to talk about a little bit. We know there's something different about this letter because it is the only one from Paul that doesn't open with either prayer 
or praise and thanksgiving. It doesn't start that way. It, it's, it's almost as though Paul senses there's just no time to waste in confronting the false teaching that is spreading in these churches in Galatia. It's like when the doctor feels they've caught some form of cancer and you catch it early and you deal with it right away. Sooner the better. That's, that's the way Paul looks at false thinking and false teaching in the body of Christ. There's just, there's no time for pleasantness. There's no time for convenience. Wham! And he's at it right away. Something else. I think there's a message in these verses for, for the contemporary church, for a church like ours. It's not just a dusty record of some ancient controversy over doctrine in the early church. It's not just that. I mean, we are where Paul was in terms of the thinking of the day. And I hope you'll see how urgently these verses are needed in our minds in our pulpits, in our Christian education classes, in our Bible studies, in our home devotions. Here's what I'm getting at. Pastor Chris read the text where he said, uh, I, will, I will speak, I will declare all your statutes I will not forget your word. I will not forget your word. And what I want to point out in the next few minutes is forgetting his word is not the only problem. It's not even the biggest problem. There's another problem. There's something else that can creep into a church that does just as much damage as forgetting the word. Here's what I mean. It's easy for all of us to form ideas about God. I hope I, can, I hope I can say this in a way that it's clear and you remember it. It's easy for us to form ideas about God that feel right because they describe God in a way that doesn't clash with the primary values of our culture the culture in which we live and breathe. And it's easy to form our ideas about God in a way that fits with the culture that shapes our thinking about everything else as well. The problem arises when, when those dominant ideas about what God is like that we get from the culture in which we live, the problem is when those ideas about what God is like don't fit with what God has told us about himself. In other words, when I form ideas about God that are very comfortable and convenient, but don't mesh with what God says about himself, and he knows what he's like better than anybody else. We can actually form culturally acceptable ideas about God. Standards for God's behavior. And these natural inclinations then make it feel uncomfortable 
to accept God's revelation of himself in his word because he says things about himself in his word that don't mesh very well with the way our culture thinks about God and what God ought to be like. And then what happens is the Bible starts to feel like it, it can't possibly be true in what it reveals about God because it doesn't fit with what I think God ought to be like. Let me give you just an example of this, all right? Let me give you an example. A biblical text, when it's read in its plainest sense, it just clashes with what we think God ought to be like. The text I want to read, I'm just pulling this as an example. Revelation 2, 1 to 6. If you've got a Bible, if you're at home, look it up. I want you to follow along and see. Revelation 2, 1 to 6. This is Jesus now. Jesus is writing to some local churches, congregations like this in specific places. And here's what Jesus says. The, the, the ascended Christ. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's a picture of Jesus walking among these churches. I know your works, your labor, your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. There's more. I know that you've persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So, out of all this list of things, there's two things. There's a lot of correction. A lot of things Jesus sees that need fixing in this church, but there's two things that Jesus says are great. They are intolerant. Think about this. Two things Jesus says are great about this church. They're intolerant, and he praises them for their intolerance, and then at the end he praises them for their hatred. Does that sound like Jesus to you? He picks two things about this church that he really likes. Their intolerance and their hatred. It's not just that they don't agree with wicked people. They won't tolerate them. They're not even given a place at the table. No way. Their views aren't allowed not tolerated, not accepted, not for a second. Jesus says, good, I, I like that. And then, he hates the teaching of the, they, they hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, this false teaching, 
And Jesus says, me too. I hate that too. We have parents in this church, if your kid is at the table and there's broccoli and they say, I hate broccoli, there are parents here who will say, we, we, don't, we don't use the word hate in our house. Anybody ever done that? And then we put them in children's church and Christian schools and classes and Sunday schools to study the words of Jesus. And then here, Jesus says, you hate these wicked teachings? Me too. I hate that. What are we going to do with this? It's a truly shocking text. Unless you don't let the words we just read register. I mean, in the midst of all the faults Jesus points out in this church, he, he praises them for two things. But the things he praises them for aren't very nice. They're not things we would praise anybody for. Intolerance, two, and hatred, six. And it's Jesus doing the praising. And my point is, it's very easy for many of us to come to a text like this and carry the bias of our cultural value system where tolerance is always beautiful. And hatred is never right. Carry those things so that Jesus isn't allowed to say what he actually says in these verses. It's worse than forgetting his word. It's squeezing it out. And because our culture's value system is so pervasive, we usually don't realize we're carrying it into the biblical text. We usually don't think we are. It's only our response to God's word that suddenly reveals, oh, We've got blind spots here. We've got a grid where we accept some things that the Bible says and other things not so much. Today's text is an example of that. I have about three thoughts I want to leave with you. Point number one. The foundational principle in these verses is there's only one gospel. Six and seven, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. You, you can see, can't you, how verse seven is really given to correct what might have been a wrong interpretation of Paul's words in verse six. In verse 6, he expresses his amazement that these Christians are so quickly turning to a, quotes, different gospel. And he's concerned now that that might leave them with the impression that there's an option, that there is another gospel. And so verse 7, right away, no, 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 no. Not that there is another gospel. There isn't. There are no other gospels. God gives no other options. He's not obligated to, again, this doesn't fit with, with the plurality of religious openness in our world. God doesn't do any polls. He never asks anybody to vote. He just reveals. So there are no other options. There are other religions. There are other sacred books. There are other inspiring leaders. There are other designated prophets. But there's no other gospel, Paul says. 
And I hope you can see what Paul is, is doing here. I hope you can understand why this is making him so unpopular. It still does. This is what's called in the New Testament the offense of the gospel. It was offensive then, and it's offensive today. We shouldn't be surprised at that. He's standing flat-footed against the notion of a blending of religious ideas into some kind of soupy syncretism, pick different ideas. People may think they can modify the gospel. They may think that they're turning to a new and different message. They may boast of their open-mindedness and their tolerance, but they can't be saved by any of those messages. Paul just stands flatly opposed to the notion that we're all finding our way to God through our own sincerity, our loving deeds, our humanitarianism. Paul says, no, there's, there's just one gospel. This is the way you have to come. And then Paul takes it a step further. He refuses to allow for the possibility of any other revelation of hope and salvation outside Jesus Christ. This is where he addresses the possibility of the appearance of even angelic beings, like you have in Mormonism. Any other anointed messenger, even himself, he says, even if we change our mind, though we or an angel from heaven should give you another gospel, talks about that in verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. This is, this is Paul's measuring stick for divine truth. And, and I mean, the world's religious stage is, is just littered with messages from angelic beings all over the place. Almost all religions claim some input from the supernatural realm. Many of those religions still contradict each other. So, so Paul just removes the gospel from the reach of any additional revelation or modification from angels or prophets or teachers so that the passing of time, the changing of attitudes, worldviews, it just, it just marks a change in our fickle opinions, but not the truth content of the gospel. Which is why, and Christians need to understand this, that's why the key elements in the gospel are validated by solid events, traceable events, in space-time history here on Earth. So it's not just that there's some supernatural revelation that Paul gets. It's revelation that is anchored in things that took place in history, in this world, that everyone can identify and spot. Whether it's the birth of Jesus. Remember how God literally calls shepherds and moves stars to get wise men. Why? People 
needed to observe that event. It isn't enough that it happened, it has to be witnessed. The death of Jesus, crucified in the city of Jerusalem, where literally the people of the whole world were gathered because of the Passover celebrations. It's not enough that Jesus dies, it had to be witnessed that Jesus died. Or the resurrection of Jesus. Remember, Paul says the risen Christ was seen by over 500 people. It's not enough that he rises from the dead. For our faith to stand up, it needs to be witnessed that he rose from the dead. Jesus doesn't just suddenly disappear, gone into heaven. He gets his disciples all together so people can stand there and watch him ascend into heaven. It's not enough that he ascends. It has to be witnessed that he ascended. So when we talk about the Christian faith, you might say, well, look, you were just talking about the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons, and how they have their angel with this, with this uh, revelation to Joseph Smith. And Christianity's got angels in it. How is that different? It's different because all of the key events of my faith aren't just things that were revealed to Paul. They're events that are tied to historic event, events in this world that people observed and saw and recorded and witnessed. It's a different foundation. It's a different foundation entirely. Point number two. Because of the internal, in-church nature of the false teaching, the church must care as deeply about the content of the gospel as it cares about the effect of the gospel. There's a particular kind of false teaching that Paul was addressing. It wasn't the competing religious system along the lines of Islam or Hinduism. In other words, it wasn't a competing religion outside the church. Paul's concerned about false teachers that were professing Christians from inside the church. Galatians 1.7 Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are, who are troubling you want to distort the gospel of Christ. Notice what else Paul says about these troublers. Paul, talking about Peter, says he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. They came from, James was the head uh, elder at the church in Jerusalem. And these people came under the guise of the authority of James. And when Peter saw these guys come from Jerusalem, these heavyweights, he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. However, when they came, he withdrew, separated himself, because he feared those of the circumcision party. So, these false teachers, they knew the leadership in Jerusalem, including the Apostle James. They claimed to be coming from him. So they weren't, they weren't foreigners or outsiders to the Christian faith. They knew the ropes. They knew the words to use. They knew the names to drop. They worked from the inside. This seemed to be a pretty common occurrence. It doesn't get talked about much today but it receives frequent and repeated warnings in the New Testament. 
So here's, here's your Bible. Here's, just a minute. Here's the New Testament, okay? So here's the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. After the book of Acts, after the book of Acts, every epistle, the rest of your New Testament, after the book of Acts, every letter in your New Testament after the book of Acts is specifically written to correct false teaching in the church. Did you know that? That the whole thing, the whole thing after the gospel and Acts is written because of false teaching in the body of Christ. This is how much the Bible cares about false teaching in the church. And yet we don't hear a lot about it. Listen to Paul's last words to the church he planted at Ephesus. And as we read this, remember, when I read from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, it was that church of Ephesus where Jesus says, you've left your first love. How could you do it? Okay? Now, this is years before. This is Paul writing to the very same church, the church at Ephesus, and this is what he says in, as his, his last words. John 20, 25 to 31. And I know now that None of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Oh, there you, there you go. This is, this is his swan song. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring the whole plan of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. He's writing to the leaders of the church to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, look at this, look at this. Savage wolves will come in, in among you. See where these teachers are? Not sparing the flock. Men will rise up, here it is, even from your own number. And distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that, look at night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. We need, we need to think about that. We need to think about that. Why tears? Three years, he says. Notice what his, what his preaching was like. Not exhorting, encouraging. I was warning you for three years. That's got to be hard to take for a church, eh? I was warning you for three years. And I was weeping for three years. Three years of weeping. Why, Paul? Because Paul knew that his teaching was not the last teaching this church was going to hear. That's what he knew. He knew that his message wasn't the only message that was going to reach their ears. What he says is there'll be people who will look like Paul and act 
like Paul among them. They'll come up from within the ranks. They'll know the songs, the choruses, the hymns. They'll know the right things to say, but gradually they're going to change the message of the gospel, probably making it more open, more tolerant, more inclusive. That's the direction it always goes. Paul says, I, I just was weeping because I knew this was going to happen. I knew I couldn't stop it from happening. Now, fast forward, Revelation 2, Jesus speaks to this church and he says, you left, where'd you go? You left your first love. Well, we know where it went. Paul said when he was gone, other teachers came in with a different message. You don't get a lot of other teachers coming here on the platform, but you can read all the stuff by Greg Boyd and Brian Zahn and, and Peter Enns and a host of other guys who just take the Christian message and, and just shift things around a little bit. And Christians don't even see it happening. Paul summons the church, including Cedarview Community Church, to be clear in its doctrinal thinking. He does it on other occasions too. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking. Be, be infants with regard to evil and adult in your thinking. Mature thinking. Adult thinking. It's never easy to do. And, and, and the hyped up tone of our entertainment, social media driven world makes it harder and harder to accomplish slow, deep thinking in the church. The, the church itself has taken a noticeable, a dramatic shift away from doctrinal teaching in the last decade. People don't have a lot of patience for it these days. Everyone wants something more simple, more entertaining, more therapeutic. Practical is the term we give to it. Listen to these insightful words from John Piper on this subject. Let me just read. It's not a real long quote. He writes and says, There is a tragic pattern in churches and in history, I think. Renewal breaks forth on a church or on an age through a fresh encounter with the gospel and the spirit. Hearts are filled with the love of Christ. Mouths are filled with praise. Concern for evangelism and justice rises. But in all the glorious stirrings of heart, there begins to be an impatience with doctrinal refinements. Clear doctrine requires thought. Thought is seemed to be the enemy of feeling. So it's resisted. There's the widespread sense that the Holy Spirit will guard the church from all error. And so rigorous study and thought about the gospel are felt to be not only a threat, but a failure of faith. The result over a generation is the emergence of a people whose understanding of biblical teaching is so hazy and imprecise that they're sitting ducks for the Galatian heresy. Let me, let me give you an interesting verse. You probably, maybe you didn't know this is in your New Testament. This is in the ESV. Think, look at this. Think over what I say, 
for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Isn't that an interesting verse? Paul says, think about what I'm teaching you. Just think about it. Why does he tell them to think about it? He tells them to think about it because he wants the Lord to reveal things to them. We usually imagine it the other way around. You don't have to think. Just wait for God to speak. And Paul says, no, no, no. If you want God to speak, the best thing you can do is really learn to think. So, so in other words, the speaking of the spirit and the thinking of the mind aren't opposites. They work together. It's always God's deepest way of reaching our hearts and lives. Point number three. We're almost done. Whenever sound doctrine is rejected, God himself is rejected. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away. I hope you see this. Turning away from him, not it. That you're turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he doesn't just say they're turning from the gospel. He, he says they're turning from him, God. In, in other words, when we fail to pursue and embrace sound doctrine, it's not an impersonal intellectual problem. It's personal and it's relational with God. When sound doctrine is rejected, God is rejected. I think we need to hear that probably a little bit in the body of Christ today. There's, there's this, this widespread mistaken notion in the church that if we just sort of worship and flow in the river of the Spirit, we don't have to worry about doctrine and teaching. Doctrine just splits up churches anyway. It's an utterly unscriptural notion to think like that. It's, it's straight from the devil and the thinking of fallen angels. Point number four, last point. If the gospel is a wonderful thing to receive, it's a horrible thing to reject. And again, Paul puts it in terms that aren't very culturally appropriate or culturally acceptable. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a, a curse be on him. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, a curse, a curse be on him. So twice, Paul uses the Greek word anathema, accursed. In this passage, he uses it particularly to describe the fate of those who distort the truth and proclaim a religion that sounds Christian but isn't deeply tied to the specific truth claims of the gospel. So some of the words are there, the ideas are there, but, but it's drifted from the specific truth claims of the gospel. And Paul says, accursed. So Paul would not for one minute buy into a, to each his own kind of attitude. He had no tolerance for false doctrine. But he didn't just use that word accursed for false teachers. 
That's how he uses it in the Galatian text. He used it to describe people who reject Christ. So we know what the term means. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord come. So that word, accursed, is the very same word, anathema. People, all people are cursed without the gospel. Do we still hear that? Do we still hear that word anathema, the way we should hear it? People without Christ, without the gospel, cursed. We, I, I have the feeling we should, we should try and hear, hear that word the way a small child hears his very first thunderstorm or a homeowner experiences his very first earthquake. People without Jesus, anathema. If we grasp it, we'll realize it's a loveless, it's a loveless thing to allow people sloppy thinking in their approach to the gospel. It's a loveless thing to think, oh well, God is love. I'm sure it'll all pan out in the end. That's a loveless way to approach the lost. It's a cruel thing to treat all religious messages with the same weight. It's demonic, like a fallen angel. It's terrible to let people, children, make up their own minds about Jesus. That's a loveless thing. It's loveless because the glory of God is at stake and the salvation of the lost is at stake. No wonder, no wonder, Paul, Paul says, I'm, I'm amazed. How can people think this way? How could people turn from this gospel? That's the message. It's the message we need. Christians should protest when sound doctrine is belittled. Just think of the things people protest. You watch the news, think of the, think of the things, the screaming crowds, the signs. Most of them won't matter a hoot in the long run. But a lazy, lazy tolerance of biblical ignorance, that's, that's fatal. That deserves protest. That should be more important than anything. And so, Lord, the gospel, all of the things that the triune God revealed in the solid events of saving history so that we would know it wasn't just an opinion. We would know it wasn't just a religious system. We would know these are things that happened really happened and God wanted them witnessed because, because there's no other truth to cling to for becoming right with God. We surely want to be open to all that the Holy Spirit has for us. And we surely want to be deep and mature in our thinking about the key doctrines of the Christian faith. And those two things should always go together in any church worth its salt. 
So bless these words to our heart. Bless this text to our heart. Open our minds. Help us to think over what Paul said so that the Lord can give us understanding. Continue, Lord, to help us to be gracious and loving in all of our social media posts. Forgive us our tweets as we forgive those who tweet against us. Bless our church. And we just feel, once again, we want to tell you that we love you, Lord Jesus, with all of our hearts. In the midst of all the mess and muddle of these circumstances, our love for Jesus, we declare. And in that name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Amen.